How many of you have done a Christmas child box before? Those, a lot of you. Hey, those boxes are out there in the atrium. And this is, the Samaritan's Purse is an organization we team up with every time this year. And we've done this for a number of years in a row. It's just a great, great thing. So let me encourage you, grab a box, fill it up, bring it back. And we'll get those shipped off to some kids and do a little ministry uh, for the Lord. So, hey, if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and open to Genesis 9. That's where we're going to start today. We're going to be in Genesis 9, 10, and 11. And as you're finding that, let me tell you about a documentary that I was watching here a few months ago. You guys know I like documentaries. I've shared that with you before. But I was watching this documentary about somebody who I'd always kind of admired. Of course, I didn't know this person. It's a public figure. Uh, I don't know them personally. So all I have is this public perception of their life. And I was watching this documentary, and I've always been kind of impressed with this person. But yet this documentary revealed some details about his personal life that kind of, for me, knocked him off his pedestal just a little bit. Don't you hate it when that happens? I do. So I found out through this documentary that he was kind of a lousy husband in real life. Messed around on his wife. Had several wives. Um, ended up had taking a wife late in life as a business maneuver to protect some assets. And I'm going to, ah, I can't unlearn some things. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah, like this guy that was kind of up here on this pedestal kind of got knocked down a few notches after watching this documentary. That, that feeling, have you had that experience before? That, that feeling that I get sometimes watching that documentary, I have a little bit of that as we approach Genesis chapter 9 today. You know, we're talking about Noah still, and Noah from chapter 6 to chapter 9, he was the what? He was the man that walked blamelessly with God. He was the one righteous guy in a whole evil world, and that's why God selected him to build the ark and, and, and save his, his family. He is the guy that did everything that God told him to do. God said, build the ark, and he builds the ark. You don't have, hear one question, one argument out of Noah at all. The impression we get of Noah is that he is this super follower of God who never sinned. Well, let me just clarify, I still believe that Noah was a super follower of God, and you're never going to hear me say anything other than that. But what we learn in chapter 9 is that even Noah was not what was, was fallible. Even Noah sinned. Even Noah didn't always make the right decisions. And after the flood, you have Noah and his sons and his family, they come out of the ark and they enter into this whole new world. But it doesn't take long for us to learn that this whole new world is dealing with the same old problems from before. Warren Wearsby writes this about Genesis chapter 9. He says, the history of Noah and his family now moves from rainbows to shadows. And we behold the shameful sins of a great man of faith. We're kind of moving into this part where we're like, ah, oh, I can't unlearn that about Noah. But at the same time, it makes him a real person to me. It makes him just like the rest of us. Noah is going to experience a family tragedy here in Genesis chapter 9. You're going to see a personal sin that he did, but this sin would have ramifications in his family. It would really create a family rift that would last for generations to come. So you got your Bibles? Let's, let's, let's pick up where we left off last week. This is going to be in chapter 9, verse 18. The sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham, the father of Canaan. These were the three sons of Noah and from whom came all the people who were scattered over the whole earth. Now, this is a very important detail for us to pay attention to. 
Shem, Ham, and Japheth, these three sons of Noah, they are the ones that will repopulate the earth after the flood. Every single one of us in this room is a descendant of either Shem, Ham, or Japheth. Did you know that? If you're able to trace your lineage as far back, and I think a lot of us would have a hard time doing it, but if you could, eventually you're gonna get to one of these three men. Shem, Ham, and Japheth are our forefathers. It says in verse 20, Noah, a man of the soil, proceeded to plant a vineyard. When he drank some of its wine, he became drunk and lay uncovered inside his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father naked and told his two brothers outside, but Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it across their shoulders. Then they walked in backward and covered their father's naked body. Their faces were turned the other way so they would not see their father naked. When Noah awoke from his wine and found out what his youngest son had done to him, he said, cursed be Canaan. The lowest of slaves will be to his brothers. He also said, praise be to the Lord, the God of Shem, May Canaan be the slave to Shem. May God extend Japheth's territory. May Japheth live in the tents of Shem. And may Canaan be a slave to Japheth. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. Noah lived a total of 950 years, and then he died. You know what I love and appreciate so much about the Bible? Is that the Bible tells the truth all the time. The Bible does not sugarcoat anything, and it certainly doesn't hide people's flaws. And if you've read the Bible, that is true throughout. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't cover over, and it's hard sometimes when we see these great biblical heroes of faith, and they mess up. You know, I think about Abraham. We're not quite to his story yet in, in the Bible, but Abraham, the great father Abraham, he didn't always trust God with every decision that he ever made. I think about Moses, who would eventually lead the Israelites out of slavery um, from Egypt. Moses actually, um, in a fit of rage, murdered a guy one time. And you know what else? He argued with God a lot. I think about David. King David, he's the man described after God's own heart. But you know there were times in his life that he was sexually unfaithful. He lied and he, had, and he shed innocent blood. That's, that's David. Think about the New Testament. We think about Paul, one of the greatest evangelists ever. You know, the Bible doesn't hide the fact that before he met Jesus, he was a persecutor of Christians and did a lot of damage to people's lives. How about Peter, one of Jesus' closest friends, denied that he ever knew Jesus three times in a row. Now, the Bible doesn't make excuses for the sins of our biblical heroes. If anything, what the Bible does is it records their stories so that we would know what not to do as we study this out. In fact, Paul brings out this point when he's teaching the, the Christians in, in Corinth. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 6, he's talking specifically about the shortcomings of the Israelites, but it, it applies across the board. What does he say? He said, now these things, these shortcomings, these bad things that happen, occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. In other words, the Bible has this, you should learn from other people's mistake kind of way about it. A couple of verses later, Paul says this in verse 11, these things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. 
So the Bible doesn't sugarcoat um, uh, one ounce of the lives of our, of our biblical heroes, their, their failures, their mess-ups, um, and, and that's what we're seeing here in Genesis 9. Noah got drunk. And the Bible's very clear about drunkenness and, and what God thinks about it, and he doesn't want that for his people. And Noah's drunkenness serves today as an example of what not to do and about the trouble that it got Noah in. And don't follow Noah's mistakes. Even though he's a great man of God and nothing of that ever changed in the Bible, he made a mistake. And it was written down, and it serves as an example for us. So just a little side note, don't ever get cocky and think, I'll never do that. You know how many people have said, I would never do that, and they do that. So don't think you're standing firm. Be careful. That's the warning of the Bible. Be careful. So Noah gets drunk, and what that demonstrates for us is this, that the sin that Adam brought into the world and cursed mankind with, well, you know what? It's still around. That, that's what we learn from this. It's still here. We find out that uh, after the flood, Noah was a farmer. That's what it means in verse 20 when it says he was a man of the soil. And Noah grows a vineyard, and this vineyard is going to get him into a little bit of trouble, like we just read. A little interesting note here. I try to point out interesting things that I come across in Genesis. Um, Noah's a farmer. You know, there's two farmers mentioned in Genesis. Do you know who they are? Noah and... Cain, very good, very good. Noah and Cain are the two farmers mentioned in the Bible. And I, I find that interesting because Noah grows a vineyard and that's gonna get him into some trouble. Cain, some of his fruit got him into a little bit of trouble too, didn't it? Who was it these farmers? I, I don't know, it got them into some trouble. But this is also another little, if you ever find yourself on Jeopardy, this might come in handy. This is the very first time that the word wine is used in the Bible. This is the first mention of wine. Now, does that mean there was no wine or alcohol before the flood? No, I think there was wine and alcohol because even Jesus said, you remember what he said about the pre-flood world? He said in the days before the flood, people were eating and they were drinking and they were marrying. I don't think he meant Diet Coke when he said that, you know? I think he meant the, the real stuff. I mean, this is, this, is, this is wine. So the reason that's important is some people try to explain Noah's sin away by saying, well, they didn't have wine before the flood and Noah made a new discovery and he had no idea what he was getting himself into. Or, or some people have said, you know, the atmosphere changed so much and he had no idea that it would ferment so quickly and be so strong. Honestly, I think the text means exactly what it means. I, I think Noah grew a vineyard, fermented some, some grapes and created wine and he drunk himself silly. I think that's what we're supposed to take away from this. So he drinks, he gets drunk and he passes out or he falls asleep in his tent, and the Bible doesn't tell us why all of his clothes are off, but let's be honest, that's really not a shocker, is it? <laughs> I won't ask the next one. Been there? Uh, anyway, um, no, I'm kidding. Drunkenness never leads you into normal behavior, does it? I mean, have you ever heard somebody say, boy, it's a sure good thing I got drunk because I'd have never figured out how to balance my budget otherwise. No, no, nobody says that. No, nobody says, it's a good thing I was drunk when I was arguing with my spouse or I would have said something I really regretted. No, no nobody says that. Because drunkenness never leads you to doing anything normal. Uh, I think the same, same is the same for Noah. I don't think it led him to do anything 
normal. I guess we could say at least he was in his own tent when this went down. Now, you know, uh, the Bible doesn't say why Ham showed up at his father's tent. We don't get any details. There's no context there. I don't know if he knew his father had been drinking. I don't know if, uh, if he thought his father was sick or if he called into the tent and didn't hear anything. Perhaps he thought his dad was dead. I, we don't know. We don't know those details. All we know is that Ham showed up at his father's tent and whatever happened by him entering the tent in Noah's predicament turned out to be an extremely disrespectful act by Ham. And this, this fear is where Ham's behavior steps way outside of the bounds and it reveals something very troubling about his character. This is what's happening. There's something about Ham's character that is not right. Because you think somebody in a normal situation, they would maybe realize what's going on and Ham, because he loves his father, he would have maybe, you know, discreetly gone in there, covered his father, got out of there, t- never told a soul, and it could just be one of those things. And, and, but that's not what happened. It seems like, and again, it, it seems like Ham enjoyed the moment more than he should have. Um, he enjoyed the fact that his father was in a compromised position. There was something that maybe was humorous to him or it's hard to say. Then he went off and he told his brothers and the impression we get is kind of like, hey, Shem and Japheth, you gotta come see dad, man. You're not gonna believe what's happening to dad. Get over here. You know, um, the 10 commandments have not been written yet at this point in history. The fifth commandment specifically, honor your father and mother. You know, that had not been written down yet. But there is this concept that Ham completely disobeyed something he should have done. There should have been some honor and respect for his father here, but he didn't. Instead, it really shows something that his character is off. Something's, something's wrong here, especially with says, Shem, Japheth, come look. Now, Shem and Japheth, his two brothers, cut from a different mold. They didn't have this character problem. They showed, actually, what I think was proper love and respect for their, their dad. And do you remember the details? They, they, they went to the tent and they backed in. Do you remember? We're not going to even look. They covered themselves. They, they quickly did one of these things, I think, through the blanket. They made sure their eyes never saw their father because something about that would have been extremely disrespectful and shameful. Ham didn't care, but his brothers had great respect. There was a difference here in the character of these these brothers. You know, Proverbs 10, 12 says this, love covers over all wrongs. If you are reading from the King James Version, it says, love covers over all sins. Proverbs had not been written yet either when this happened. But Shem and Japheth, these other two brothers, I think that they lived out something related to this proverb because they showed some real love for their father by putting these covers on him and and not trying to embarrass their father, being very discreet how they do it. Now, I'll tell you, the rest of the Bible teaches us very clearly that love by itself cannot cleanse anybody's sins. That is reserved for Jesus Christ. It's only through the shed blood of Jesus Christ can our sins be forgiven. But there's this concept here about what love does. And that if you truly love somebody and you, and you care for somebody, then you are in it for them and you want them to win. And there is a love that we can show towards other people that actually helps them cover over and overcome the sins that they may be involved with. And I think Shem and Japheth give us an example of just that. 
They're not giving their dad a free pass. It's not like they're condoning his behavior. It's not like we're going to turn a blind eye and pretend like that didn't happen. That's not what they did. But, but they went about covering over their father's shame and nakedness, and it was an act of love. It was that we don't want him to be embarrassed. We don't want bad news about him spread around. We don't want the gossip mill to run all over. Love motivated them, from my point of view, to, to restore their father. Reminds me of what Paul taught the church in Galatians chapter six. He says, brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit, in other words, if you're a Christian, you got the Holy Spirit living in your life, leading the way, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. So I look at the responses of these brothers. You got Ham's response to their father's sin and you've got Shem and Japheth's response to their father's sin. And it's really, for me, it's an ancient example of how people who love the Lord and love each other should respond to sin. Ham was okay to embarrass his father. Shem and Japheth loved their father and they desired to, to help him overcome this. And, and, and I think that's exactly how we should be. I believe that's consistent through the church, just like what Paul says. If someone's caught in a sin, you should, because why? Because you love them, you got the filled with the spirit, the, the, the love of Christ, the law of Christ lives in you. My goal is to help this person become restored. And man, I'll tell you, if you're the one that has fallen into sin, don't you wanna be around people who love you and wanna restore you and lift you up? Or if you're around somebody who has, don't you wanna be a part of the group that helps love or restore? Do you wanna embarrass that person even more? This is the heart of what we're seeing, this ancient example. Now, we don't know how Noah found out how all this went down. I mean, Noah obviously wakes up and realizes something has changed, and maybe he goes to Japheth, his oldest boy, and says, well, what happened to me? Some, somebody was in my tent, and maybe his other boys ratted out Ham. I, I, we, won't, we don't really know, but there's a pronouncement in the text that comes next. It's, curse be to Canaan. That's Noah's response, which is interesting because you would think he would say this, curse be to Ham. I mean, that, that would be, I mean, if he was angry, so angry, why would he curse his grandson? Because that was Ham's son, Canaan. And he says, curse be to Canaan, is Noah's grandson. Well, we'll get into that more in just a minute. But I want to point something else out to you. Because you may not realize this. Right here in chapter 9, at the very end of chapter 9, these are the only recorded words of Noah in the Bible. Did you realize that? Now think about this. For over a hundred years, he built the ark and we don't hear one, we don't have one recorded word of Noah. He lives 378 days in the ark with his family and the animals. Zilch, not a word, uh, not any recorded words on the ark. He comes out of the ark, makes a sacrifice, worships God. God creates a covenant with Noah. We get the rainbow, all that stuff. Not a word. Noah gets drunk, passes out and gets naked in his tent and now he's got something to say. I, I don't know what that means exactly. But it's only after that happens he says something that's recorded in Scripture. I, I don't know. I, I look at things funny, I guess, sometimes. Let's look at it again. What exactly did Noah say? Look at verse 25. After this incident, sometime after this incident, he said, Curse be Canaan, which is his grandson, by the way. The lowest of slaves will he be to his brothers. He also said, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Shem. May Canaan be the slave to Shem. 
May God extend Japheth's territory. May Japheth live in the tents of Shem. And may Canaan be uh, the slave of Japheth. We don't know when Noah said it. Um, we get the impression that it was that morning he woke up in anger and said, Curse be Canaan! But you know, I've studied this out. I don't think Noah said this in anger at all. And I don't necessarily believe that he said it the next morning. Um, because if he said it the next morning, he would have said, curse be him. I think this is something that came much later. I believe he's making a pronouncement, if you will, a, a prophecy, a, a proclamation before he dies about his descendants. What we see plenty of in the Old Testament, if, you, if you're familiar with it, you know that, uh, that it was typical for a father to give a blessing over his children and family before he died. That was typical. We're going to see some of that before we're done with the book of Genesis. I believe this is more what Noah is doing because he includes all of his kids. It's not out of anger just towards one. It's like, I've got something to say about the whole family. I believe this is pronouncement. A lot of times in the Old Testament when we read these fatherly blessings, which were highly sought after by the kids, by the way, um, a lot of times they came true. It's like the father knew something about his family. I believe Noah is inspired here when he says this and he makes this proclamation, this blessing, this prophecy over his family. And it is stunning how this has come true. I mean, it's, it's quite remarkable if you take the time to get, dig into it. So he makes three proclamations here at the end of chapter nine. The first thing he says is, curse be Canaan. I, I believe this, he's making a prediction about his grandson Canaan because of something he saw in his grandson's character. So he has his son Ham. There's something off there. The Bible, that's, it's kind of easy to discern that. It's kind of that, that same thing that's off is passed down to his, his son Canaan. And so Canaan is now populating the earth from Ham to Canaan. And Noah, I believe he lived 350 years after the flood. He saw more children and grandchildren and he saw that there's something about this branch of the Noah family tree that is kind of off the rails. Curse be Canaan. Canaan would become the father of the Canaanites. And we know a lot about the Canaanites in the Bible, don't we? The Canaanites were known for their idolatry all throughout the Old Testament. The Canaanites were known for their sexual perversions all throughout the Old Testament. And it's the Canaanites that would eventually come to rest and be in what we know today as the Holy Land. And it would be Moses leading the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt into the 40 years of wandering, and then Joshua would lead them to drive out the Canaanites from the Promised Land. There's, the words of Noah are coming true right here as you get through the Bible. Now, the second pronouncement was a praise to God, in fact. Praise be to the Lord. And he says, the God of Shem. So something about Shem must have been like his father. Something very holy. The God of Shem. And then he says, may Canaan be the slave to Shem. This is Noah's pronouncement about his own descendants. Your line is going to serve this line. This is really something because Shem's descendants would eventually become the Israelites, also known as the Jews. Jesus, the Messiah, would be a descendant of Shem. And so no doubt, I have no doubt, this prediction was, was like foreshadowing the events of the Exodus when the Jews, like I said, led by Joshua, would drive out the Canaanites and they would serve the Jews. He's pronounced, this is a prophetic word about his own family. The third pronouncement was that God may increase Japheth's territory. Japheth's descendants 
would essentially become the Gentile nations of the world. So like I said, Noah lived 350 years, total of, uh, after the flood, total of 950 years. And I want to be very clear about something because of the way I started my sermon today. There is nothing in the Bible that uh, would indicate that Noah ever stopped serving God. I want to be very clear about that. So he's still a super follower of God in the Bible. Yeah, he messed up by getting drunk and naked in his tent. There's no doubt about it. But I believe it's safe to assume that one mistake, one sin did not derail his walk with God. One screw up did not define his walk with God. Just like today, how one mess up does not define your walk with the Lord. We are covered by the grace of God and certainly we should and we assume Noah did seek out forgiveness of that sin and that sin serves as a building point for future maturity and to serve as a benchmark of what not to do in the future. So I don't believe that this defined Noah's entire walk with God. Yeah, I wish he'd have never gotten drunk. But you know what? It makes him more like me. And it makes him more like you. Fallible and in great need of a savior. It makes him very real. So as we move out of chapter nine and we move into chapter 10 and chapter 11, what these next two chapters do specifically is they help us understand and put names to, uh, to families and areas of the country after the flood as Noah's three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, go about repopulating the, the earth. Um, on the surface, have you, have you read chapter 10 and 11? On the surface, it's like, this is just a bunch of names of people I've never heard of before, and I'm just going to skip it to the good part. How many of you did that? You can be honest, okay? How many of you are like, what are all these names? Where's the next part? Okay, all, right, all the honest people and all the rest of you, you know, you're like ham. Okay, so anyway, no, I'm joking. I'm, I'm teasing. No, but the, the temptation is to like, I don't get this genealogy. I'm just gonna skip over. But what you may not really understand is that it doesn't, it doesn't like today in our mind doesn't make a lot of sense to us, but this right here is one of the most essential chapters of the whole Bible. Because what it does is it outlines for us how all of these people spread out, all of these nations went to different places. If you're reading from an NIV version of the Bible, you're probably gonna notice that there's a subject heading that just says tables of nations. Does your Bible say that at the front of chapter 10? This is so, so in, important. Um, th this is where we learn about different races and cultures. It's these two chapters where we, we learn why we speak so many different languages on this planet and, and how people populate the earth the way they did. Um, there are some really significant spiritual takeaways from these two chapters. I'm gonna share with those with you before we're done. But this is one of those places where if you're wired a certain way, you're gonna love chapter 10 and chapter 11 and you're gonna wanna take a deeper dive into this genealogy because what you'll discover is fascinating. If you're one of those people that wanna do it, here's what I'd recommend. That you open up chapter 10 and chapter 11 right next to a good Bible map of Genesis 10. Now your Bible may have one of those maps. If not, um, they're easy to find online. There's all different kinds. I'll show you one right behind me. Um, this is a biblical map of the world of Genesis 10 and Genesis 11. 
And as you read through these genealogies, you're gonna see all the names on the map are gonna be all of the people in this uh, table of nations genealogy. And you're gonna see how they spread out and populate over the world. How now Ham's descendants went one way, Shem settled in another area, Japheth settled out into the north a little bit. And, And it's really fascinating as you dig into it. Let me help just pull out a few of these details what the table of nations shows us is that they went as far uh, to the west as Greece and as far to the east as Media and it covers a span of 1,500 miles. These people spread out. They went as far north as southern Russia and they went as far south as Ethiopia in Africa and that's over 2,000 miles. The people of the post-flood world, they really did spread out. But what these two chapters also teach us is that This new world was absolutely plagued by the same sinful problems as the pre-flood world was. We learned that in chapter 11. You got it open in front of you? Here's what happens next. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. That's hard to fathom, isn't it? That's hard. How many of you know somebody that speaks multiple languages? Or how many of you know personally somebody that speaks a completely different language than, yeah, a lot of us. It's hard to fathom that we would all just speak the same language, travel anywhere in the world and be one language. But that was how it was then. As people moved eastward, they found the plain in Shinar and settled there. The plain in Shinar, we know where that is today. That's modern day Iraq, okay? So we know that. They said to each other, come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used bricks instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. The Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over the earth and they stopped building the city. That is why it, is, it was called Babel. Because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there, the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. So at some point during the repopulation of the post-flood world, everyone, while they're still speaking the same language, they had this bright idea. Let's build a city, and that city is going to have a tower so tall that it can touch the heavens. Why would they do that? Why would they want to do that? Were they wanting to make a name for themselves? Well, the Bible says they were. They wanted that. They were hoping this architectural feat would make the whole world go, look at those guys. Were they hoping that this tower would maybe protect them from another flood? I don't know, maybe. Hey, we'll build a tower so tall that when the floods come again, it will never touch us. I don't know, maybe there was some thinking there. Did they think this tower, the city, would protect them from their enemies? Sure, some, sure, somebody brought that up. But could it be simply that it just came down to good old-fashioned sinful pride? This tower was an attempt of mankind to glorify and fortify himself at the same time. No matter what all the motivations were, this tower basically symbolized a lack of faith in the promises of God. It was mankind's monument to his own disobedience. Why, why would I say that? It's because God gave them a very specific command. You are to multiply and spread out over the whole earth. 
This was about mankind circling up and saying, we ain't going to be scattered. We're going to do our own thing. And so God put a stop to it. So what happens? The Bible says that God came down to check it out. Now, let me just be really clear. It's not like God didn't know what they were doing. It's not like God's up in heaven going, do you hear hammers off in the distance? Do you, do you, what is that? No, no, God knew. This is just the Bible's way of like, God thoroughly examined what was happening. He knew what was happening. And there's a reason for why he made the decisions that, that he did. And, and here's my assumption. Here's, here's what I think God saw. God saw that this was just the beginning. Um, I, I think God must have looked right into their hearts and, and, and saw that this is only the beginning of a much bigger rebellion at hand. And he's like, I, I'm gonna put a stop to it. So how did he do it? He just confused the languages. He didn't send another worldwide flood. He'd already promised not to do that. He confused the languages. They couldn't understand each other. This construction project came to a screeching halt and the people continued to gather and, and scatter uh, among their people groups. You know, this might be another area where some of you who are wired this way would love to take a deeper dive in the book of Genesis because there are many people believe that the Tower of Babel and the remnants of it are still here. Did you know that? They, they, believe that, that, that they believe that it's still visible. Now, I told you the plain of Shinar is in Iraq, modern-day Iraq. And in modern-day Iraq, you do find ruins of this city of ancient Babylon, where this Tower of Babel, which is closely connected to Babylon, and uh, there's some evidence in Genesis 10 where a guy named Nimrod was a builder of great cities and conquerors, and he's connected to Babylon. So when did all this happen? Somewhere in chapter 10, that long genealogy, the Tower of Babel happened somewhere in the middle there. Probably when the guy whose name is Peleg was mentioned, because it's his genealogy, they come to Peleg, and it has this little side note. That was when the earth was divided. What does that mean? I think it could mean that's when God scattered the languages and people were divided and spread out. We're not really sure. But somewhere in that genealogy, this chapter 11, the story of the Tower of Babel happens. And many people believe that the ruins are still here today. Let me show you a picture. This is a Google Earth image. And I'm gonna get out of the way because I realized last night I talked about it and I stood right in front of it and you couldn't see it. That little square at the bottom of the screen, these are some of the ruins of ancient Babylon. And that square, that little piece of earth is actually the foundation of a, what once was or was attempted to be a huge tower. The name of that, it's modern day name today, and I'm gonna butcher the name, but it's E. Timonakai. And I don't know if I'm saying that right, but we live in Arkansas, so who cares? Um, <laughs> so anyway, right? Am I right or am I right? Okay. But that's what it's called today. And that name means house of the foundation of heaven and earth. It's actually, the formation is called a ziggurat, and um, they're in that area. There's some of these, but there's something special about this one. And, um, and if you just Google, you just Google this, the Tower of Babel, you're gonna pull all this information while the people think that this is actually the remnants of ancient Tower of Babel. Um, you, you wouldn't think it, but there is a lot of famous and interesting things that happened near this little piece of dirt. And there's a lot of famous names from your high school history classes that messed around with this little piece of dirt over the years and millennium. And it's fascinating. If, if you will go and do a little deeper dive into that, you're gonna learn a lot about Genesis 10 and 12 and 11 and, and just, by, just by researching that. You're gonna learn names and, and places and it's fascinating. Another side note here. 
in chapter 10, all of these names on the table of nations, do you realize there are a ton of those same names that would also become cities and nations among themselves that are found in other places besides the Bible? All over the world, they have dug up the names of these people in archaeological digs that verify the Bible. It's pretty fascinating. Anyway, you enjoy that deeper dive. Hey, Genesis chapter 9 through 11, what are some of the spiritual takeaways? Because this sermon's kind of a little different than some of the others. This is one of those sermons where I've got to put some of these important pieces in place so there's the continuity of the story of these first 11 chapters come together that sets the stage for the rest. But there are some significant lessons we learn from the end of chapter 9 all of chapter 10 and, and chapter 11. I'm gonna share four of them with you quickly and then we'll be done. The first one is this. It's obvious from reading this. God is the Lord of the nations. That's all over these chapters. Not once do we ever lose sight of this truth when we read this, that God is Lord of all these nations and nothing has changed. Now, what, what has continued to happen since this time is that we have continued to spread and we have now spread all around the world. We have accomplished what God told mankind to do. And, and mankind for years, and even to this day, we have been not consumed about godly things. We have been consumed with our own Tower of Babels that we are building all over the world. And one day, this is all gonna come to an end, and, but that doesn't mean that God still isn't Lord of all. And it's very clear. Here's the second spiritual takeaway from, from these chapters. It's this, we all belong to the same human family. You can't understand it any other way. We're all descendants of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. All the races, all the nations, all come from them. We are all part of the same human family. Now, it's true, we have separated, we have divided ourselves, and, and uh, we, we have truly spread throughout the world. But at the end of the day, we're all one family. And what that means is this, that no race or people can claim to be superior to any other race or people. And I'm really glad that we've conquered this um, problem in our world. Well, that's a, that's a sermon for another day, okay? But I will say this about, about racism. And when I say racism, racism, I mean this. I mean um, judging somebody by the color of their skin. I mean taking a position of superiority over somebody because you think your race is better. Or you look down on somebody because they might be of a different race. That's what I mean by racism. And what's clear from the beginning to the end of the Bible is that racism has no place in the family of God. Paul said in, in Galatians chapter three, verse 26, he says, so in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile. There is neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to his promise. That will make a lot more sense in a couple of weeks, I promise you. Third takeaway is, is this. God has a purpose for the nations to fulfill. Very clear. Next week, we're gonna be into chapter 12. And from chapter 12 on, Israel 
The nation of Israel is going to take center stage. And it would be through the nation of Israel that would bring us Jesus. And it would be through Jesus that brings us salvation to the whole world. Clearly, God has a purpose for all of these nations. And God also has a purpose for the church. Fourth takeaway is that God is concerned for all the nations. Absolutely. Even though Israel will take center stage and and the Bible will call Israel God's chosen people, what we do see here in these two chapters and throughout the rest of the Bible is that God's eyes were never off all the other nations. There's plenty of language in the Bible, especially as you go through Psalms, that says things like this, all the lands, all the nations in regard to how God sees them. Like I said, Israel takes center stage, but God's eyes are never off all these other nations. And this becomes so clear when you get into the New Testament and the time of Jesus, when Jesus said to his disciples, I want you to go and make disciples of all nations. And God's concerned for, for all the nations. He's been concerned since day one. And he has had a plan to save all the nations. And that sets the stage right here in these two chapters of the Bible. Like I said, next week, Genesis 12, or yeah, it, it, it takes a whole new direction. And, um, and um, the first 11 chapters of Genesis, what we've just been through, sets the stage for everything else all the way through the book of Revelation. These 11 chapters. So we should know them for sure. Let me pray for us. Dear God, I just thank you that, that we can come here to this place today and we can open up your word and we can study it. And that, Lord, we can learn some things. Like Noah is a real dude who messed up. And it makes him just like us. But, Lord, we believe as Noah still walked with you after his mess up, we still walk with you, Lord, after we mess up. But we should repent quickly, Lord. And I pray that's the, the message we hear from this, that one mistake doesn't define our walk with you, but it should help us grow and mature and become more like you. So Lord, my prayer for our church family is that we would constantly be growing, that we would constantly be learning, and that every day that we live, we become a little bit more like you as we walk daily trying to be blameless in an evil, among evil generations. Lord, as we see you had great concern for all the nations and, 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 and your plan as it plays out through the Bible to bring salvation to all, we thank you, Lord, that that salvation came to us. That your son, Jesus, sacrificed his life on the cross so that we could live. And we are forever grateful, Lord. Help us never forget it. Help us, Lord, to be a church that as you had concern for all the nations, we have concern for all people. And that, Lord, our desire would be like your desire, that we would be patient because we don't want anybody to perish, but everybody to come to repentance. Lord, help us to be a church like that. That's our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.